Hello, and welcome to Best of Shows, a weekly conversation about the biggest things happening on the small screen and a guide to what TV is and is not worth your time. I am Kristen Baldwin, TV critic at Entertainment Weekly, and I am joined by my fellow EW critic and TV junkie, Darren Freenich. Hi, Darren. Kristen, I'm still in tears over the Deadwood movie. Oh. Don't don't talk to me. Don't talk to me yet. I'm not ready. Okay, okay. I'm ready. You're ready. I'm ready. You're ready. <laughs> I mean, it's been a long time coming for you fans and uh, for the actors, and it really did uh, it warmed the heart with lots yeah. of F-bombs. Let's talk about that later, though. Yes. Let's yes. save that for later. Let's have something to look forward to. Let's kick things off with our What's New segment, in which Darren and I talk about the week's most notable new and returning show premieres. So... On June 5th, the Emmy-winning Hulu series The Handmaid's Tale will return for its third season. If the season two finale, in which Elizabeth Moss's June chose not to leave Gilead with her baby, had you screaming at your screen, season three probably won't do much to restore your confidence in that decision. The Handmaid's Tale went off book with confidence in season two. It broadened the depiction of Gilead's toxic empire and deepened its study of civic responsibility in the midst of a revolution. But in season three, the writers chose to keep June in her narrative prison, and now they seem to have run out of new things to say about her life there. The new episodes, and Hulu showed us six new episodes, hit a series of familiar notes. We get the extreme close-ups and cheeky voiceover prayers, the refusal to decide whether Yvonne Strahovski's Serena Joy is a villain or a savior, and the fetishized version of Gilead's brutal effort to silence women. There are some potentially interesting developments in season three, like June's fledgling efforts with the resistance and what happens with Emily, played by Alexis Bledel, after she gets in the escape van with baby Nicole. But the show spends more time on familiar drama with June and the Waterfords. I really enjoyed season two up until the final minutes of the finale, but I really don't have that much hope for the second half of season three. Darren, what did you think? Well, Kristen, first of all, I've been a fan of your brilliant career for a long time, but successfully saying Yvonne Strahovski and fetishization in the span of a couple sentences. I don't think I actually successfully said (laughs) fetishization, but thank you. Kristen, you know, you have a wonderful review of this new season of Handmaid's Tale up on our website right now, and I hope everybody reads it. There's so much to figure out with this new season. I still think there is a lot to admire and be fascinated about with The Handmaid's Tale. It is a exceptionally strangely made TV show mm-hmm. and and its its aesthetic is getting more and more elaborate as it goes in the first episode. Um, there's just a lot of hysterically framed shots, for lack of a better word. Um, <laughs> there's there's kind of one dialogue scene between uh, Yvonne Strahovski and, and Joseph Fiennes' characters and like half of it is just shot in this one specific angle, kind of looking into a mirror. There's a lot of stuff yeah. like that yeah that, that there's lots of that 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 i do think is very interesting um you know i've said it before and I, and I say it again i do want this show to run for as long as the trump administration is a thing because i do think there's some <laughs> kind of just you know catharsis involved in right. watching this show uh, I, i've seen only the first three episodes of the new season and each one kind of brought me to an emotional outbreak point and, and I, I i do admire that but wow i i just think that the decision they made at the end of season two Mm. to sort of keep June in Gilead. 
I, I, I guess that's just one of the worst mistakes a TV show has made in recent yeah. years. Um, and, you know, in, in this new season, there's so much that they're doing that... Uh, you know, uh, on a clinical, critical way, I, I, I can say, okay, I see how they're trying to kind of expand the show a little bit. And, you know, we're seeing a little bit more of the world around June in Gilead. Um, as the season finale kind of implied, there's more kind of going on with the Marthas and that whole kind of subculture within the world. It still is able to kind of just create the, these really stark and fascinating images of a dystopia that is not so far moved from our own there's a there's a scene in i think it's first or second episode um where june just goes shopping and like that supermarket is this sort of horrifying not so far removed from ralph's or cvs except for the fact that it's a totalitarian world yes. version of reality but there's just a lot that's not working anymore Kristen. how do you feel about you know i think i don't want to spoil it too much for people who are still really intrigued by these new episodes but there's a lot more with the bradley whitford character yeah and i I just think that none of that is working um, at all. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because he was, you know, introduced at the end of last season as Commander Lawrence. He's sort of this weirdo recluse who was the architect of uh, the colonies in Gilead, which is, of course, the basically death camp where people uh, go to work when they have broken some kind of law and they're all just sent there to die. They're like shoveling toxic waste. So he's a very important figure in Gilead, but obviously... Uh, somebody who could be seen as heartless. <laughs> that said, by the end of season two, he's helping Emily and presumably June escape. And so you think, oh, he's actually, he's got some regret for what he's done. He's, he's uh, you know, starting to reform. But then, in, at least in the first six episodes out of, I believe, 12 or 13 that they sent us, they're sort of doing the whole Serena thing with him where it's back and forth, back and forth. Is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? Is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? And it's like, oh, God, just pick one. I don't really know what the point of that is other than to just create these scenes of intense tension that don't really forward the story. And um, I also just wish, you know, the reason I wanted June, one of the many reasons I wanted June to leave is because I wanted to see the storyline of what does it mean when you're essentially a refugee who has escaped a violent and totalitarian society and how do you and you are reunited with your family and obviously it's very it's not like it's it's going to be awkward it's going to be strange it's going to be fraught because you're a different person they're a different person and while there is one storyline that vaguely touches on that this season they really just don't go there. They give yeah. us a tantalizing taste of that with one character and then they just drop it and go back to like, oh, Serena and Fred are the worst. And yeah. and it's just frustrating because I do think they could tell the story of Gilead and its fall, which presumably is where this is going, as the heroine makes it makes step one of her escape. It's not the end for her, obviously. Her child would still be, one of her children would still be in Gilead, but the revolution could continue. And yet they just chose not to do that. And everything feels quite repetitive as a result. Yeah. Do you think, Kristen, I, I wonder if part of the problem is that 
the first season of this show, which I do think was possibly because it was working so much from the book, even as it was kind of taking off in its own directions and as it was able to kind of explore some corners the book didn't, it just felt as if you're looking at one specific household mm -hmm. in this larger world. And, you know, there were times when that larger world would intersect in a major way, you know, when the the um, delegation from the foreign country was coming to Gilead, that sort of felt like, okay, we're seeing the larger, right. you know, major historical realities of this fictional world now but it in general it just felt as if these are some very specific characters in this world this season it seems to be making this argument that actually the people you've been watching are like the, the three or four most important people in handmaid's <laughs> tale america right and, and and you know some of that kind of comes across from june's actions now are much more explicitly you know th there's a lot of talk about a resistance yeah and th there's much more kind of talk about her kind of uh, seeking allies for this resistance and the implication is that the allies that she is seeking are people who will have a major kind of role to play and even you kind of mentioned that the Bradley Whitford character we already know you know he's not just kind of another commander this is always kind of the sort of you know sad sack reality of Joseph Fiennes's character was that you know within the household he kind of had this monarchical rule but whenever you saw the larger world around him it was like oh actually you're kind of a putz yeah like, you know, you're you're just kind of, and in a sense, this is an insight into how all the commanders are. That you know, they all kind of fancy themselves to be the local Stalin, but in fact, they're just you know these these batch of cronies. But now we can have the now we have the Whitford character, who is explicitly someone who's very important, and you know whether he's good or bad, and that that duality. It doesn't feel like there's anything in between there. It is just sort of the like now he's turned on the bad switch, now he's turned on the good switch. Yeah. So it just it all feels like you know I love what you're saying because it feels as if there was this missed opportunity to keep the story on the human scale. Yeah. Right. To focus on what is it like when this specific person has to be a refugee or has to kind of reacclimate. That feels kind of lost to this larger resistance narrative, which just doesn't feel as compelling. Because they don't even really explore it. There's one. One episode, episode two, where, you know, it's not spoiling anything to say because it's in the trailers. Like, she sort of, June teams up with some Marthas who are part of this underground female-led resistance, and they take her on a mission, basically. And the mission has sort of positive, but then also very catastrophic results. But then that storyline basically is dropped by the end of episode two, beginning of three, because then all this drama starts happening with Fred and Serena and uh, June and, you know, baby Nicole and all this stuff. And so they keep talking about this resistance. And then like, there's one element where it's concretely sort of laid out and then it's just sort of bubbling in the background. But then they spend a lot of time on real pretty visuals like or sort of imposing and awesome yet scary visuals. They go to the Capitol and the Capitol has a lot of this uh, you know, you see the Washington Monument. This is in the trailer. It's not a spoiler. The Washington Monument has been turned into a giant white cross. Um, they're, you know, they're sort of gatherings of handmaids all, you know, like lined up like soldiers and as far as the eye can see. And so there's a lot of that and it's pretty and it's like, oh, this place is really bad, but nothing has happened. Uh, and it's just, it seems like, uh, just so many missed opportunities. Well, and and I, I wonder too if that kind of gets back to the everybody drink now fetishization that you were talking about. <laughs> yes, um, where it is, I, I worry that the thing you don't want to say about this show is it makes 
gender totalitarianism look beautiful, right? You know, or or and I and I get that you know some of that imagery I do think does really still work. Even um, in the second and third episodes, there's just a lot of scenes of people like hanging randomly in town yes. square and the creaking and, of the ropes and and the creaking and, and you know as much as I worry that you know. That's another example of this show, which used to have this kind of delicacy. It's it's getting more over the top as it yeah, goes. For Some sure. of that does still work, but the rest of it is, yeah, you know, there's this mission plotline in episode two, and not every show can be a like espionage narrative. <laughs> right. and, and and it's weird because, you know, this show has done episodes before. In in season two even, which I know a lot of people were kind of back and forth on, season two had a couple episodes that were just kind of almost like walking deadish as far as just being these like survival stories. Yeah. And I, I, I thought those were generally good, albeit kind of breakaways from what seemed like the show's main purpose. But yeah, in episode two, there's just a lot of stuff about like a character named Cora in episode two who like I literally even don't even know you, who that is. You barely even know who she is, and it comes up a lot. And there's just a lot happening. There's gunshots. Yeah. And again, this is all stuff that, like, in the context of season one, any one element of this would have been incredibly shocking. Because yeah. in season one, there was just this incredible lingering tension in a household. And it just seems like now they're kind of trying to level into this different action movie-ish space, and I'm not sure it's serving the characters so no. well. You, you mentioned a lot in your review the kind of Serena problem. Yeah. And as, as much as I do think that um, Yvonne Strahovski is doing a lot with a character who a lot of it is just kind of close-ups on her having an internal struggle, <laughs> yes. but it, it, it does it does feel as if that's a struggle we've seen a lot of. A now, lot. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. I got angry at myself, honestly, because, you know, by the end of season two, you're thinking, okay, she she let the baby go. She's she's turned the corner. She realizes that the this society, this you know government that she helped create is not good for women. No, it's just it goes back to the the same old dance, and it, it's it's pretty disappointing. Um, you know, the acting's still very good. Um, I am getting quite tired of the extreme close-ups on Elizabeth <laughs> Moss's face. You know, it's just, it's a lot. And, you know, Anne Dowd, who plays Aunt Lydia, is fantastic. It is not a spoiler to say that she didn't die. Like, of course, they're not going to kill her yeah. uh, she's in the trailer. But again, like, there's another lost opportunity. When is the Aunt Lydia backstory episode, people? Like, when? Three seasons in, the woman can't get a backstory. It's ridiculous. It feels strange that with Aunt Lydia... You know, she became such a big part of the show's iconography after season one. And as much as she's still, like, bad, obviously, she's bad. She's yeah. working for a total, you know, there's this is not, like, the show seems to want to do this thing where it'll show moments of her seeming to be, you know, gentler, yeah. or seeming to be more complicated. Like she's really there to protect the women. Right, right. And, and I think I think it's interesting to play around with that, to kind of dig into the ambiguity of that. But it, it just sort of feels as if the show still ultimately has one note to play with her. Mm -hmm. you know? And, and it, it can only play that note louder, whereas you know, we know <laughs> that's a great performer, and it feels like 
there's a way to kind of gain more insight as opposed to, I mean, one of her first scenes in this season is her like shocking someone with a taser yep. and it's just or with, with, with electric rod. It just, it just feels like rather than going inward with these characters, they're just getting kind of bigger and they're yeah. just getting, and, and I, I think that's too bad. It, it worries me because I, I did think that as much as season two had its issues, there was a lot going for it until the last two minutes, which yes, is, I agree. to have been the most transformative two minutes that any good show has had in the last five or five or six years. It's so true. And, you know, I'll finish out the season for sure. I was concerned about season two, you know, because this is a show that based on a book, maybe they should just end it when the book ended. But I thought they did a nice job with season two until the final minute. So I just now it seems like they just have this idea that it can go on for many more seasons when mm-hmm. at most this probably should be a four season show and even that's stretching it. If it continues sort of at this pace and without any real, it's a lot of uh, sort of treading water, I, it probably will fall out of my rotation. I want 10 seasons, Kristen. <laughs> 10 seasons of Handmaid's Tale, 20 seasons of Big Little Lies. <laughs> and 104 seasons of Killing Eve. <laughs> uh, Handmaid's Tale debuts on Hulu with its new season on June 5th. Kristen, we're going to shift gears a little bit here, talk about something that has already aired, the Deadwood movie, last Friday, long awaited. We're going to spoil everything, everyone. So if you haven't seen it yet, uh, do watch it is the thing I would say. I would recommend it. I, I think it probably helps if you watched <laughs> the original series, which you should do anyways because it's great. Um, but if not, it's a you know it's a hoot and a holler to watch on a Friday night. Let's dig in here, Kristen. Yes. What was your experience of the original Deadwood, which ran for three seasons on HBO, 2004 to 2006? I will say that I was... I was somewhat of a casual fan if you can uh, if and if one can be a casual fan of a very sort of ordinately written uh, very dirty physically like everyone's dirty <laughs> western with a lot of f-bombs and sex and that said though i really didn't think of myself as somebody who knew a lot about deadwood or really was deep into the mythology of it and then when i watched this movie I realized, oh, I do know, like, I'm familiar with all these characters. I do know enough of their backstory to really understand what's happening. I had to look up where this series originally ended because I don't think I ever watched the original series finale. I always found it a little hard to follow. And um, everyone's very dirty, as you know, I don't like that. And so I, it was never one that I got super obsessed with. Yeah, I watched every episode of it, and yet what I would always tell people is it's a show you kind of just have to let it wash over you. This is a series that, I mean, on the most broad level, you would call it a Western. It is yeah. set in the it is set in the true life town of Deadwood uh, in, in the Black Hills of what would become South Dakota when the original series begins. It is sort of in the midst of a kind of gold rush era. Even kind of calling it a Western, that almost more applies to where the show began because over time it just became so much more, as you said, ornate Mm -hmm. and and theatrical. It's one of those shows where you reach for descriptions like it's about the formation of a community and it is about, you know, the formation of America out of the sort of dregs of of society. The main characters initially were Al Swearingen, played by Ian McShane, who kind of ran the local saloon slash whorehouse slash center of all the plot lines in town. When the show begins, you see the arrival of Timothy Oliphant's Seth Bullock, who then becomes the 
the sheriff eventually. But even kind of pinning the show just on the two of them does the series a disservice. Uh, creator David Milch, who's just one of the great dialogue writers in the history of television, is just so interested in like everybody on the show. And this movie, which takes place about as many years later as the movie is airing compared to the original series, it's kind of best understood, I think, as a love letter to the characters and to the ensemble. Um, the movie, which I think, Kristen, I sort of told you about this. The movie's like cleaner than the show was. Did you get that vibe? Like, just, yes. You know, well, the like, town is a little more. The put town together is cleaner. And... <laughs> yeah, it, it, there's still mud, um, yeah. but I didn't feel as sort of stressed out watching like. Alma and her nice dresses walk through the streets because it felt like there were places for her to walk where she wasn't yeah. going to be stepping right in horse poop or whatever. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and, and you know, she is kind of returning to town. It really is, in a lot of ways, an old-fashioned reunion movie. Yes. Where, you know, you have the year is 1889. Everyone who has either been in Deadwood or, or who has ever been in Deadwood is returning to celebrate the fact that South Dakota is about to become a state. The film kind of opens with the return of uh, Robin Weigert's Calamity Jane who's such a great character and she's having a great HBO moment because she's also uh, about to be returning as the therapist on season two of uh, Big Little Lies. Um, and, and from there, Kristen, I, I really found that the movie kind of organized itself plot-wise around this kind of long overdue feeling showdown yes. between um, the George Hurst character who is a, a true life person, the father of uh, William Randolph Hurst, who kind of loomed large over the last season of the show you might I mean, ultimately you kind of say he's the villain of the movie um, which is even like a little simplifying it compared to what the show portrayed it as but it's basically him versus everybody else right and um, some of that stuff didn't work for me so well but just a lot of the interactions between the characters were really really wonderful I'd love to know what you think of this Kristen this is like it's almost biblical how the movie packed in like there's a main character death there is a birth there is a wedding like it's yes. kind of all the stages of man are all crammed into a three-day span. On the, on the it's movie. so true for <laughs> such a sort of unique and very quirky in its own way, not in a you know sort of sitcom quirk, but a very strange show in a lot of ways. This movie felt remarkably traditional in yeah. that you know there was a lot of fan service, whether it was you know giving fans the sort of Hearst Bullock showdown that they didn't get in season three that they wanted and uh, you know, characters coming together um, like Calamity Jane and Joni, right? Yep. Yeah. Um, Played and, by uh, Kim Dickens. Yeah. And they're both yeah. great. And like, they have this sort of ride off into the sunset, you know, romance, which is lovely. And, uh, and yeah, there was a wedding, there's dancing. Like it, it did feel very celebratory in a yeah. nice way. Yeah. It, it very nice is the word that I would use. And it's funny because there's, there's a part of me that I, I mean, I, I love, of the original show, I, I really think that, I mean, it it almost kind of like stands with and in some ways even above the other great HBO shows of that era, mm -hmm. because as much as The Wire and Sopranos and Sex and the City, as much as those shows were so inventive, like those shows have all been kind of absorbed into a lot of other TV series, yeah. whereas it's impossible to do that with Deadwood, I, I think. It, it is so distinctive and so unique even now. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's, it's a letdown in some respects only because of, of the conventional nature of it, but just what really stands out to me, Kristen, are um, the scenes with some characters just giving speeches. 
which is something that was so central to the original yes. show. I mean, like, in, in the original show, just in season three especially, there would just be these long scenes of characters kind of talking to themselves that are all so wonderful. Um, the writer, uh, David Milch, who uh, in, a lot of interviews, in a lot of interviews recently, he's talked a lot about um, how he's been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And so I, I think that knowing that kind of can't help but give this incredible added layer of, uh, po- of, of poignance to just everything. I mean, right. You know, with um, with Al Swearingen, who was such a dominating figure um, on the show, he's kind of there was a point in season two where you kind of saw him have these major health issues, and that's a huge part of this movie is him kind of like declining and ultimately him in the end dying, um, and that you know that is in one respect it felt to me like perhaps an easy out for a character who was really ambiguous, you know, to kind of turn him into this sort of. Um, figure of incredible emotion he- here at the end and, and, and of kind of unreserved emotion. I mean, he's someone right. who loomed large over the show, did a lot of bad things to a lot of people. Here he really is, you know, he's giving away a Trixie <laughs> a- at the wedding. And that's that's something that, you know, in that sense, the movie will always, for me, kind of stand apart from the series. Um, but just, boy, the emotions that I felt watching it were pretty real. Yeah. And even uh, for, for me, it, 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 it hit a high point kind of early when uh, the character Charlie Utter, uh, play, uh, played by Dayton Callie, um, he just has this incredible monologue about his little plot of land that he has and the river that's on the land. And I'll be honest, the first time watching it, as per usual with, with David Milt's dialogue, I only got about half of it. But yes. the half that I got... That was pretty good. Yes. <laughs> and and he's so wonderful. I always loved him on Sons of Anarchy. I do yeah. wonder, to me, it felt like the language was a little less uh, sort of opaque. Uh, mm. And I had read in an interview, I think, conducted by Alan Seppenwall, who you know has done a lot of reporting on this show and with Milch, uh, that HBO wanted a locked script. You know, Milch was famous for during the production of Deadwood, like showing up, like on set with new pages, and you know things <laughs> were always at the last minute. So I do wonder if the inability to tinker. Um, yeah made it conform a little bit more to a traditional standard and also the language to me, and maybe I just uh, have gotten smarter, but I don't think that's the case, felt uh, easier to understand. I think that's true. I mean, even uh, I, I was just recently uh, rewatching some episodes of Milch's show he did after Deadwood, John from Cincinnati. Your favorite. Um, which is one of, my, one of my favorite weird shows ever made. And it was, I mean, that's a show that I like a lot and I, I get about like a tenth of the dialogue. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and those are not like, you know, old West people speaking in elaborate Shakespearean diction. Those are like surfers outside San Diego. So, yeah. But he, you know, I, I, I do think there's something to that, Chris, and I do think that, you know, the locked nature of the script even kind of comes across in the sort of structuring around, you know, you have the death of Charlie Utter, you have the birth of Saul and Trixie's child, you have their wedding, you know, just it all feels a little bit more straightforward. Um, whereas again, in season two of Deadwood, season two of Deadwood, which I think is basically one of, if not the best seasons of dramatic television ever, um, you know, that was just a, a situation where it, it just felt as if things were just going in every possible direction yeah. and characters who you kind of least expect would start to really have these these showcase moments. Um, but in general, I, I don't know, Kristen, how do you feel about the fact that this is sort of something that was looming on the horizon for so long? For HBO specifically to finally finish Deadwood, th- that kind of feels like 
it, it is kind of a closing of the book on the show and even kind of that whole era in a way. Yeah. Because this was, you know, this is kind of very much the show that was of that moment of the HBO renaissance. And I, I find that, you know, as someone who loves television, this kind of ending happening so soon after the ending of Game of Thrones, which was the sort of chief HBO thing for this decade. I don't know. It was it, it was a lot to take in yes. on just a macro level, even if a lot of the micro stuff didn't necessarily work for me with uh, the movie. I think it's nice that this era where, you know, shows are never really dead. It seems like we've almost gotten comfortable with the idea of like, oh, well, somebody else will pick it up or, yeah. oh, they'll come back for a reboot or, oh, Veronica Mars is back. And I think it's nice. It's a fitting sort of conclusion and it shows the evolution of how fans had to go for what 10 years waiting for this movie and thinking it'll never happen and yeah, longer yeah yeah we're now at this era where it probably will happen you know if, <laughs> if some you know somebody just shrugs and and they're thinking like oh mad about you and suddenly there's a six episode revival on some streaming or digital, I don't even know. I actually don't even know where it's going to air. I think Spectrum. <laughs> anyway, the point is that like literally everything seems to be possible now. So it is a nice, it is a closing of a chapter when when you had to say goodbye to things. Because yeah. um, we're now in this chapter where apparently nothing ever ends, like yeah. The Handmaid's Tale. But it's a nice, this is a great property that needed it. And I think yeah. it's really nice when a lot of these reboots, a lot of these revivals don't need to happen. Yeah. Um, but this was a story that was unfinished and it's a you know it's i i really give hbo a lot of credit for you know they also know they have to hang on to the loyalty of fans and viewers who you know are seeing game of thrones leave and they want to sort of engender some goodwill and this will do that yeah, and I, I think, too, what I liked about this revival also is it, it, it. this does feel like an ending. This does not feel like a revival that is, in one way or another, kind of launching something new. And, you know, and in that sense, I mean, you know, do, do I believe in a million years that Seth Bullock ever got into a fight with George Hurst on the streets of Deadwood? Like, I really don't, and I'm not sure that it, it worked to the movie's credit to, to have that kind of moment. But Seth Bullock walking back to his house, snow oh. falling, him saying he's home elsewhere and Jin talking about God as he died that's all that's all that's good stuff, good I'm, stuff. I'm, I'm not I'm not you know smart enough to be able to like bat that away you know so uh, I but I, I do want to hear what everybody else out there thought about the movie whether you were a fan of the original whether you hadn't revisited the original in a while um, it certainly is uh, an end of an era and uh, you know we should just I'll, I'll always be thankful for any amount of David Milch dialogue yeah. on, on, on television and I worry that we're kind of coming to to an end of that um, and so, uh, so Deadwood, the movie, finally happened. What do we look forward to next? I guess it's the Game of Thrones prequel. <laughs> <laughs> Kristen, we're going to take a, a quick break right now. When we come back, we're going to do some TV talk. Darren, I like anything that makes my life easier, and Green Chef is one of those things. It's a USDA-certified organic company that makes eating well easy and affordable with plans to fit every kind of lifestyle. Green Chef lets you choose from a wide array of easy-to-follow lifestyles and select organic ingredients, and it comes delivered to your door. Meal plans include paleo, vegan, vegetarian, pescatarian, keto, gluten-free and omnivore. Darren, I'm ordering keto, which is a low-carb, gluten-free dinner, uh, and I'm excited to try that. My hero, Vinny, the keto guido, uh, is my inspiration. What about you? 
Uh, Kristen, I am very inspired by you doing keto. And listen, shout out to all the paleo, vegan, vegetarian, pescatarian, and gluten-free people out there. But I consider myself an omnivore. And let me tell you, the omnivore dishes are looking fantastic. We got some rosemary roasted chicken. We got some Cuban steaks with mojo sauce, mango sriracha chicken. Kristen, these are all things that I want to eat and I want to make. But as I am not often skilled in making things, it's very helpful that Green Chef sends it all right to our door and makes it easy for me to start roasting some Parmesan Dijon salmon. I like cooking all these things. I like eating all these things, but I'm not so good at the actual preparation. That's why Green Chef does the meal planning, grocery shopping, and most of the prep for me week after week. And it can for you too, listeners, for a total of $75 off. That's $25 off each of your first three boxes. Go to greenchef.us slash EWBest75. That's $75 off, $25 off each of your first three boxes. Go to greenchef.us slash EWBest75. Green Chef is now owned by HelloFresh to offer a wider array of meal plans to choose from. So there's something for everyone. I enjoy switching between brands for when my tastes change or when I want to eat a little differently one month. Maybe go pescatarian one month. Who knows? And now our listeners can enjoy both brands at a discount. That's greenchef.us slash EWBest75. Hey everyone, I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living and host of Biscuits and Jam. Since 2020, I've been interviewing musicians, chefs, authors, and other Southern icons about their family traditions, their faith, their favorite meals, and of course, what it means to be Southern. And I'm excited to announce Season 5 of our award-winning podcast. Join me every Tuesday for new conversations with some of the most interesting and influential Southerners around. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuits and jam. Now it's time for TV Talk, where we talk about TV. And Kristen, specifically, this week we are talking about Big Surprise, The Good Fight. Wait, wait, non-CBS All Access subscribers who wonder why we keep talking about the best show on TV. Don't tune out. Don't tune out. Stick around, because good news for you non-subscribers. The Good Fight is coming to CBS for a special limited broadcast run. Uh, the first season of The Good Fight, the spinoff of The Good Wife, uh, will start airing two at a time, Sunday nights, beginning June 16th from 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. That's going to be on June 16th and June 23rd, the first four episodes of The Good Fight. I'll be honest, Kristen, I still have not watched season one of The Good Fight. Me I neither. Jumped with, I jumped in with season two, and I loved it, and I've loved season three. I'm excited to kind of try watching it in this old-school terrestrial broadcast I know I wish I were uh, part of a Nielsen household because then it would uh, it would encourage CBS to do this more often but I'm excited to watch it too and it's interesting Kristen because we were still talking about this a little bit after this news came out I'm excited about anything that puts the good fight in front of more people Um, I've found kind of a couple of things in the last year since I've been really zealotly trying to get people to watch it the first is that when people watch it they get into it and the second is 
if I tell people it's on CBS All Access, it's like this sort of White Walker fugue state comes yeah. over their eyes, and they refuse to listen to anything else that I say. Right. I think that's too bad. Um, but it, I, I do wonder about this as a methodology for getting more people to pay attention to it. I mean, what did you kind of think when you heard this news? Because it's definitely it's pretty unusual, though not unheard of, as we may talk about. Right. To have something that goes from streaming to a broadcast situation. I was just super excited for the same reason. Now we can be like, listen, people, it's free. <laughs> just set your DVR. You'll record it all and you can watch it and then realize what you've been missing. And I'm sure the cast is excited, too. You know, when I was on set, they all are very happy with CBS All Access, but they they sort of have that same experience you do is when they you know tell people, oh, it's on streaming it's on all access people are like oh you know i already pay for netflix and hulu and you know it's hard to pay for another thing so you have to get people over that hump you know responsibly of course you don't want to tell people to like, subscribe to things they can't afford but uh this will give people a reason to to really consider it if they are able to watch the show for free so i'm excited I have to say, Kristen, uh, when this news was announced, the first thing that I thought of, of course, was the Quarter Life experiment from 2008. What is Quarter Life? Every single person out there is asking. Quarter Life, Kristen, was NBC's, in fairness, really pioneering attempt to create a like web series. Uh, the year was 2008. The internet was a thing. Everybody knew about it. But what was the internet? Mm -hmm. It was a place for young 20-somethings to get together and do question mark, question mark, question mark. Uh, Quarter Life was created by the team of Marshall Herskovitz and Ed Zwick, who had created uh, the pioneering series 30-something. And Quarter Life, which I watched a lot of because yes, I was did. watching a lot of NBC.com at that time. In those early pre-Netflix streaming days, NBC.com was my go-to spot because that was also the place to watch Friday Night lights for those of us who did not have uh, any any cable package at that time in our life um the show was ridiculous did you watch it at all Kristen? were you like or, or were you invested in it at all oh, i was definitely not invested in it i i'm sure i watched part of it and then i was just like Ugh. uh in part out of snobbery because you know as i'm sure you're going to get into it's a show <laughs> <laughs> that launched in eight-minute increments on, I believe, MySpace, um, which, like, already pour one out. And then, uh, and then, you know, NBC, I guess, picked it up to series, the idea being like, oh, this is the first time, you know, web video is such a big deal. Let's, we can turn this into a TV show. Yeah, they tried to kind of after it had already aired in these little increments that you're describing these these eight minute increments that fortunately television. Although Kristen, I will say, gosh, I, I, I'm realizing this live at the time. The concern was like, oh no, is this all TV episodes are going to become? Yeah. Are they, they going to be eight minute things? Little did we realize there would come a time where all TV episodes were too long. Thanks yes. to Netflix. Oh my in god, hindsight, the cruel hindsight, irony. In hindsight, eight minute increments were not that bad. Um, but after the web series that already aired in its entirety NBC then sort of tried to bring it out where they basically stitched together uh, I guess it was like four or five at a time into a full broadcast episode and I believe they broadcast all of one episode before yep. deciding that was a bad idea and you know um, where it went then where did it go Bravo. No! It got shunted to Bravo after oh. one episode was pathetically, you know, low rated. God, 
what a different time for just the entire landscape. Where where, where Bravo? I mean, God, like, does Bravo have any room for anything now? They got no, they housewives could, is. They, <laughs> you know, unless the the characters were living on a luxury yacht, you know, they wouldn't want to air it. But you know what's so interesting about it, Darren? I was doing some research looking into this, and I found this if you can believe it, Harvard Business Review article about the quarter life experience. Ooh. And it pointed out that, you know, NBC was trying to quote unquote disrupt, which is of course the, you know, slang or or terminology used in the, you know, in the digital biz about like we're trying to disrupt things and, you know, change habits and whatever. And so they were trying to do this digital disruption of taking this web series and putting it on on TV. But the reason it failed is because they were trying to force something new, the idea of web video, into an old-fashioned model, which is the broadcast TV model, which totally makes sense. And at the time, you know, it was 2008, and web video was still classified as quote-unquote web video, and it was definitely seen as as less than. You know, yeah. this was not a real TV show. It was a web video. It wasn't until, I don't know, maybe 2013 when Netflix dropped House of Cards. You know, they took this big-budget real show by a real guy named David Fincher, and they put it all essentially online. And that was when our feelings, you know, started to transform about the idea of, oh, I can watch something online and it's the same quality if not better than what we see on tv well it's all about it's the interesting it's the interesting sort of like um economic idea of you know are are you fighting tomorrow's battle on today's battlefield yes or are you fighting your own battle what a horrible metaphor but i'm gonna try to extend <laughs> this i'm gonna try to extend this because um it's interesting that with the house of cards thing that you're talking about you know once that happened, it was kind of like, well, nobody is waiting for House of Cards to go anywhere. It's on Netflix. Netflix is waiting for us to subscribe. And, right. You know, that's still generally held up. I mean, like, you know, there's situations where, like, BoJack Horseman um, was sort of sold into reruns on Comedy Central for some bizarre reason I don't understand because I think everybody who likes that show is definitely some sort of Netflix subscriber. Um, but it's funny to think of how with Quarter Life, which just so everybody knows, Quarter Life is a show that very endearingly was like trying to capture something about what nobody was even really calling millennial culture yet. And it was just doing it in the most non- authentic way possible and it's kind of like you know clearly Herskovitz and Zwick who are both brilliant uh, creators it, it is the experience of watching someone who's kind of vaguely heard about social networking try to make a show about it and it's <laughs> very very silly um, al- al- although it is interesting because uh, a lot of the performers kind of went on to do other things afterwards um, but it's funny to think of you know it failing because here is a thing made for web you're then trying to fit into this model Right. I, I do sort of wonder you know the good fight is powers of a thousand better than quarter life ever was. Um, but it is interesting to me that so much of my experience of it is experiencing it in the way that I believe the Kings intended it to be experienced, which is this really, you know, raucous and unusually paced TV series. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked a lot about the fact that in season three, especially the opening credits sometimes were happening at the like 17 minute mark. 
And so, you, you know, I, I do wonder, you know, I, I'm excited for anything that gives it more visibility. I, I do wonder, you know, what is the experience of that when this thing was so, so much meant to be experienced a certain other way? I, I do kind of worry about that to a certain extent. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we, we should point out that The Good Fight's predecessor, The Good Wife, um, which relative to other shows on CBS was never a huge ratings getter, I believe even in its last season, it was still kind of getting somewhere around like 10 million viewers, yeah. which is more than half of the shows we ever talk about on right, the show right. ever got. So I, I, I do wonder if, you know, for those people who may how to put this delicately, not be of the demographic to discover streaming just yet. <laughs> I, I, I do wonder if this will be a way to kind of sample it and a way to kind of nudge them in that direction. Yeah, and I mean, just more people to see it, the better. Quarter Life died, so the good fight could eventually live for a limited run on CBS <laughs> broadcast television. Do you remember Do you remember the plot line on Quarter Life that was all about a pretentious film student trying to make a really artsy car commercial and the whole thing was the whole thing was he made a car commercial without ever showing the car that was incredible this this everybody seek it out seek it out it's buried somewhere on like youtube and or some other video app right now (laughs) yeah it's it's truly it sounds insufferable so uh i i'm not super surprised that uh, it it did not live long but uh it was just ahead of its time darren it was ahead of its time good for you quarter life something I've been waiting 10 years to say. (laughs) Kristen, that about wraps it up for this week's edition of Best of Shows. Uh, We do want to hear from everybody, whether you were into the Deadwood movie, uh, whether you are anxious about or are watching The Handmaid's Tale season three and and you got thoughts, a lot of thoughts to share, or even if you're the other person who watched Quarter Life. I know there's one other person out there. There must be. The ratings for the single broadcast airing uh, were uh, not zero. Um, so there must have been some Nielsen households watching. Uh, tweet at us. I'm at Darren Franich. She's at Kristen G. Baldwin. Uh, you can find this podcast wherever you get your podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, on Radio.com, on Spotify. Uh, and while you're, you know, just kind of letting us know your thoughts, give us a rating, give us a review. We want to hear from you. We love reviews. That's all we do all day is review. We want to read your reviews of us, and we'll review your review of our review. It'll go back and <laughs> forth. It'll get very meta. I should have a catchphrase, but I don't. So goodbye. <laughs>